0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and today we've got David French, Jonah Goldberg, and Steve Hayes. The gang is back, and we have plenty to talk about. We will talk about China, the rolling protests, and what the U.S. can or should do. The Trump dinner, but more what it says about where Trump is within the Republican Party than anything else. Mass shootings, red flag laws, and what Congress may accomplish during the lame duck session. And finally, a little, is it worth your time at the end? Let's dive right in. David, I'm gonna start with you about these protests in China. Rolling protests throughout the country China's government acting like an authoritarian government, doing what they can to suppress those protests uh, and even knowledge of those protests, frankly, both inside and outside the country. What is a possible U.S. response? What should the U.S. response be? There's been sort of a mixed message coming from over here, and it seems pretty tepid.
1: Yeah, it it does seem tepid when you're talking about some of the the questions posed, for example, to Biden administration spokespeople, and they want to, what do you want to say about the protesters? Well, the protesters speak for themselves. Has been kind of a message that you've seen from the podium, and it it seems tepid. Counter to that, the Biden administration has been pretty hawkish on China to this point. Uh, the Biden administration. Many members of it have said they learned from the way the Obama administration responded to the Iranian press protesters in 09 admitting that was a mistake. So the Biden administration has been much more encouraging of the uh, Iranian protests. So what's what's going on in China? Um, it's a really good question. And there's been some back and forth internally here at this dispatch back and forth online as to how much more forceful should Biden be or Biden administration folks be. And on the one hand is the argument that, well, you know, look, going all the way back to Reagan and, and before it's entirely possible to be very forcefully forcefully on the side of, of, of dissenters while at the same time in the right circumstances, reaching um, agreements with hostile regimes. And my view is really a sort of a simple conclusion, but with a complex answer as to how to get there is we have to treat each protest movement For as its own thing, and if there is a sense that uh, vocally and aggressively supporting the Chinese protests now may delegitimize the protests in China, then you should be more cautious. If you don't think it'll delegitimize, then it definitely be more aggressive. But the one thing, the one thing I think we have to do is very concretely stand for the human rights of the protesters and indicate that there would be real consequence for any kind of crackdown like we've seen in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. It's just a very difficult call to know what is the proper uh, public posture if the regime is going to try to use your public posture to demonstrate that the protests are entirely the function of outside agitators. So I think that's the dilemma. The goal should be to do whatever we can that is most effective at supporting them. And for what that is, I'm, I'm open to persuasion.
0: Steve, are these protesters being treated differently by the administration because they are about COVID restrictions?
2: Um, that's a good question and I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I do think that we have an obligation, moral and otherwise, to speak out much, much more forcefully th- than we have been. I, I look at what we've gotten from the Biden administration. I'm embarrassed by it. Uh, you had Anthony Blinken, in addition to the, the the tepid statements that the White House put out uh, yesterday. You had Anthony Blinken yesterday take a question about this. And it's fascinating to read what he says. He basically gives a review of the COVID policies and suggests that what China is doing is not something that we would do, and then he says this, I think any country where you see people trying to speak out, trying to speak up, to protest peacefully, to make known their frustrations, whatever the issue is, in any country where we see that happening, and then we see the government take massive repressive action to stop it, that's not a sign of strength, that's a sign of weakness. Think about what he's doing there. He's just describing what he thinks the, the the sort of um, re- reaction, the des- it's a description of the Chinese government and the potential political effectiveness of what they're doing is and what it says about the government. There's nowhere a condemnation of the moral problems he should have, the Biden administration should have, I think all Americans should have, about the repression itself. And... I guess it strikes me as a a missed opportunity, not only because these protests are unlike the localized protests that we've seen in China in the past, they're much more aggressive and they seem to be spreading. Um, The the state apparatus that usually has been very successful in containing these and keeping them local is not working. You're seeing protests pop up in university towns throughout the country. There seems to be a movement. They seem to be catching fire. Not only that, but you have to look at this in the context of what we know the regime is doing elsewhere, particularly with respect to Uyghurs. I mean, we have been making arguments, the US government has been making arguments that China is in fact engaged in genocide with respect to the Uyghurs. And not only are we not saying never again, which had been the cry for decades until recently, we're not even willing to speak up about the nature of the Chinese regime in that broad context. It feels to me like a a tremendous moral failure on the part of the United States. And I think if you, to to David's point about um, the effectiveness of this, I I think we shouldn't underestimate um, what the United States can do. I'm not necessarily sure it'll be effective, but what the United States can do and what the effects can be when the United States speaks out forcefully on behalf of human rights. And of course, Ronald Reagan is the obvious example. I mean, listen to the things that Natan Sharansky said inspired him and inspired the dissidents uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, And it's pretty it's a pretty clear case. So I'm I'm disappointed and frustrated that the Biden administration has been so weak on this.
0: Jonah, there's a. Few versions of this argument, right? The U.S. is not speaking out more forcefully because, as David suggested, there's a concern that it would actually undermine the protesters by giving uh, China the, the talking point that this is driven by foreign agitators. The U.S. is not speaking out more forcefully because this is about COVID lockdowns and they feel squeamish about COVID lockdowns that they're kind of in favor of. The U.S. government's not speaking out more forcefully because we are so entangled with China and the corporate interests of this country have done quite the opposite, not just Apple, which I think has sort of become a bit of a scapegoat almost in this conversation. Um, Apple, of course, pushing a, a new functionality only in China that certainly hinders protesters abilities to communicate to each other you know, through memes and some of these pictures and everyone kind of jumping on that. Fair enough. I'm not going to excuse it. But my goodness, Apple's not the only company that has done everything it can to make itself amenable to the Chinese market, regardless of the authoritarian requirements put upon it by the government. Is that why our response has been so tepid, perhaps?
3: I was waiting for D, all of the above. Um, <laughs> but I think there's another one that's worth pointing in there. Again, I'm not going to assign numerical like percentage values to all these things. Um, but there's also the climate change thing, you know, where John Kerry, who definitely has Biden's ear, he's constantly says we can walk chew gum and walk and chew gum at the same time. They have to have dual tracks and we can condemn genocide, but we really got to work with them on climate change. Right. So there's that kind of mentality going on. Um, And I would also add this probably a little of the uh, um, Ukraine war dynamic going on here is that uh, not pissing off the Chinese might keep them. The Chinese have sat on the fence a bit more than you might have expected, given this supposedly new bold alliance between Russia and China. Um, And uh, you maybe there's the thinking that you don't want to push them even more into the Russian camp that they actually start sending weapons and whatnot. All of these are good reasons to, to to think carefully about what to do, right? Um, and I don't, you know, I mean, I, I would love to accuse David of of runaway isolationist um, <laughs> foreign policy realism and restraint, but um, I don't think it's that. All that said, as I think a lot of these problems are pretty solvable with good speech writing. Um, and I think that, you know, Blinken's comments, it's funny, like, I agree with Steve on the moral credit, the moral, um, Judgment about Blinken's comments, but analytically, I think Blinken's comments are pretty ro- correct. What China is doing is a sign of weakness. You know, countries that um, uh, aren't worried about their long, long term survival don't behave this way. The Chinese Communist Party is terrified of the Chinese people. And that's why it, it, it does all this Orwellian dystopian stuff to monitor them. Um, And, uh, and so, and this gets to sort of one of my foreign policy bugaboos about how everyone who thinks it's obvious that China, the Chinese communist party is going to be in power for as far as the eye can see. Um, they're basically making a straight line projection from the current moment and they don't have the moral imagination to realize the empires and brittle evil regimes fall all the time. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but on the assumption that it might happen sooner than we think, and they always happen to seem to happen sooner than we think. Best that we actually say what we believe and stand up for something and having a consistent moral message where you can, I mean, you don't have to say, Hey, look, we are notionally and in morally with you, but we're not going to help you at all. I mean, you don't say those words, but that message I think is still a worthwhile one to send because you, first of all, you don't want to get people's hopes up so that they stick their necks out and then get killed. But at the same time, you want to lay down markers that say, this is what we believe in. We root for people fighting for their freedom wherever they are in the world. This is a consistent position of ours. Um, and, you know, she, the, the one of the few arguments that I really have no serious patience for is this, we don't want to feed the regime talking points about how these guys are all foreign influence. The regime is already saying that these people are literally all literally making agents. that
2: case now. Yes. Yeah. Literally. So
3: like, I mean, if you can't, you know, it, 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 you can only fill so much over the five pounds into a five pound bag and they've already made that argument. And, um, I agree that we shouldn't give them some visual talk, you know, we shouldn't be like, They shouldn't be able to run video on the nightly, you know, propaganda channels on on Chinese TV of like USA emblazoned aid packages, you know, being shipped into Shanghai or anything. Um, But beyond that, uh, you know, you and and you want to have a consistent moral message about what you stand for, what you believe, what is sort of a non-negotiable position of the United States of America, even if as a prudential matter, we're not willing to blow up you know, literally go to war with China over, you know, it's, 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 it's protest, it's domestic protests. Um, but I think that one of the problems that Biden gets himself into, and that Blinken gets himself into, is they have great language, whenever there are no consequences to it. And they have crappy language whenever there are consequences to it. That's true. And so you had Blinken at that <laughs> summit in Alaska. I wrote a column about it at the time when the Chinese straight up just went through the class. It's like they just grabbed flyers off of a Burlington Community College, you know, social justice bulletin board and talked about American racism and America is evil and America, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Blinken said, yeah, we have problems, but we're working them through. And, and in democracies, there's room for self-improvement. And I was like, wait a second. China does not get to lecture us about any of this stuff. But Blinken didn't feel like he could actually defend America in forthright moral terms. We don't have Jim Crow anymore. They got it in China right now. And, um, um, and similarly, Biden, when he's running for office or when he's talking about how he wants an infrastructure package, he says the contest. Right, we have to pass all of my legislation because it's a contest between democracy and autocracy. This is an existential battle for the 21st century, where it's our model versus their model, and um, the future of freedom is on the line. Yada 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 yada. And then when actually people are sticking their heads out to fight for freedom in China, it's uh, you know Yogi Berra saying, "When you come to a fork in a road, take it." Kind of rhetorical, different splitting and talking into his sleeve. And, um, we could use a good deal bit more of, of, of Reaganite rhetoric on a lot of this stuff and just simply say, this is what we believe in. We wish we could do more right now, but these people are basically, there's nothing we can do. And, um, China should do everything it can to recognize basic human rights. Human rights are not, uh, purely Western values. They're, they're human values, yada, 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 use their own language against them. And, um, We're not doing that. And I find
2: it kind of heartbreaking. You know, I should just just real quick point to add to that. It's not just that that we know that China will say that foreign governments, particularly the the USA, are behind the protests. They're already saying that they're already being mocked for saying it. I mean, you've seen some of the protesters actually respond by saying, really, we're being manipulated and driven by by foreign influence. We can't even watch TV that originates outside of China. And yet they're they're so uh, omnipresent in China that they're that they're running our protests. It's to me, it's a silly argument. They're going to say anyway. They
3: they censor big chunks of the World Cup because they don't want to show the crowds Exactly, sitting there maskless.
2: Yeah, you know, they, they, they got, take out they take out chunks of the video when if somebody scores a goal. There was somebody who posted this, and and they did a side by side of a goal sco- scored in the Croatia game, and showed what was shown on the the world the feed that the world saw and what was shown on the feed that the Chinese saw, and they took out they edited out on a thirty two second delay every single uh, image that was of the crowd because they didn't want to show the Chinese people that. Elsewhere in the world, they are not subject to these strict COVID lockdowns. I think there's a huge advantage there. I mean, I think there's an opening. And and look, I mean, I, I think it does matter whether the United States makes these arguments. I, I went back and I was in preparing for this. I went back and, of course, I reread some of Ronald Reagan's speeches and I, I, I watched some video of his comments. And there is there is such power in the, the moral um Straightforwardness with which he makes his case. Now, I, I, if you make an argument that the United States is in a, um, a less advantageous position domestically to be in a position to make those moral arguments, that's a fair point. But I think it should we shouldn't be kept from from making those arguments because we might upset the Chinese. It's also, by the way, last point for me. If you look at the kinds of things the Chinese have been accusing us of, it's awfully delicate to think that we can't make a straightforward argument on behalf of human rights in this context. Think back to the kinds of things they were saying about the United States creating the creating COVID in a U.S. Army lab and exporting it to the world—things that were made up out of whole cloth as part of you know this this big move that. Um, Tom Jocelyn wrote for us when when he was doing his newsletter on their their wolf, the warrior diplomacy, the kinds of things they were were making. It'd be a little precious for the Chinese to object to us saying, hey, by the way, you got to treat people nicely.
0: David, I want to broaden this out before we leave the topic, which is just we still have the Ukrainian conflict. And I think back to uh, the Cold War and during that time, Russia had a lot of allies, but they were subsidiaries. There was no other superpower level equal to Russia. In this post-Cold War era and Russia invading, invading Ukraine, I'm wondering whether we're starting to see, you know, an Axis and Allies team here building with Russia, China, Iran, maybe North Korea there and sort of the Italy was in World War II kind of way. Um, do you see them coming closer together from a year ago?
1: Yes and no. So here's the yes. Um, Russia and Iran have kind of always been friends of convenience. Kind of, if, you would not say that their interests are completely aligned when when Iran is organized as an Islamic Republic and Putin is casting himself as a defender of Christian civilization. So at some level, their uh, very fundamental interests diverge, but they have common enemies. They have common interests in sort of sowing chaos uh, in that Western world order. Had a great conversation on the Dispatch podcast with Fred Kagan, and he was describing this relationship. And what was interesting to me is if Russia and China and Iran are sort of a new axis, which is... You know, they do all have common interests. They do not seem to work together very closely. It is really interesting to me that Russia, by all indications, is turning to Iran for weaponry and not the giant economy it is theoretically allied with. So if you look at, you know, one of the things that that we need to wake up about the current struggle with China if you look historically at the difference between the GDP of the United States and Soviet Union, and you have sort of one of these uh, kind of deterministic, historically deterministic outlooks that the side with the most stuff wins ultimately, that we were always going to win that thing. Like even when we were in the 1970s, falling behind militarily, we were still leaps and bounds ahead of the Soviet Union, and. And then in the 1980s, that when the Reagan economic buildup was matched with the Reagan military buildup, the Soviet Union was falling behind economically at just a stunning rate. We never confronted the Soviet Union as economically powerful as China is. And one of the reasons why it's economically powerful is because of massive entanglements with our own economy. And The interesting question to me is, okay, in this Russia-Ukraine situation, if you have an industrial giant that is allegedly your closest ally, why are you getting second-tier Iranian weapons? And so there's a lot going on here. There's also the the keen awareness that in multiple war games, the United States is unable to stop a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, I'm not necessarily one who believes those war games, (laughs) um i've talked to folks in the pentagon who do not believe those war games that that taiwan's a much tougher nut to crack but there's a lot going on here where china is not yet as close to russia as it as you might think if they are going to be called allies in the middle of a shooting war where western military stocks are being drawn down at a pretty high rate where we feel vulnerable in taiwan as i said there's a lot going on and the other thing that I would say that was very interesting to me when talking to Fred was I said what is if you're in if you are in the oval office with Joe Biden right now what is the number one piece of advice that you are giving Joe Biden. And Fred absolutely agrees that public statements are important but that was not what he said when he was talking about what's the number one thing that you could do to aid protesters in Iran and he said that immediately was Facilitate their communication. In other words, make it where they're able to communicate. And it's really interesting that literally about an hour after I read that, I read about the Apple update being pushed through only in mainland China. And what does this Apple update do without boring you too much with the technical details? It changes the airdrop function. And the airdrop is something that allows you to send information and files via Bluetooth to phones that are in your area. And it's highly confidential. And if you leave your phone with airdrop open to everyone, uh, which I do not recommend that you do in the United (laughs) States of America, (laughs) but if you do it in China, if, if you leave it open to everyone, people can send you files. And it's a way of sending confidential messages. Well, in China and only in mainland China, Apple pushed out an update where your airdrop function goes back to friends or contacts only after 10 minutes. So unless you're literally updating your settings every 10 minutes, you cannot receive these files. And that's a way that totalitarian uh, countries control communication. And so translating that principle from Iran to China, what is it that we can concretely do? Well, I'm not sure there's much we can do about Apple. Apple is responding to Chinese law. It's about as entangled as you could possibly get. But that's the kind of thing that I thought was really, really instructive when we're talking about... On the ground, how does a foreign power help a dissenter movement? And we tend to spend an awful lot of time talking about rhetoric and not as much time talking about actions, in part because rhetoric is about the only thing we can see. We don't really know what the actions are. But I wanted to highlight that because this is a very, very complicated, fluid situation where Uh, We do not necessarily need to think that the public statements that we make, and I am 100% for making the most helpful public statements we can. um, Sometimes the public statements we make take a backdrop or or, are, are less important than a lot of things we may not really know about or understand. And the thing about Reagan and I feel like Rick Bettino when he was under siege as a Boston Celtics basketball coach, and the team was floundering. And he was like, "Bill Russell is not walking through that door. Uh, Larry Bird is not walking <laughs> through that door. <laughs> Meaning, well, Ronald Reagan is not walking through that door. So what are what are we going to do? And the thing about Reagan is this pressure, this rhetorical pressure he placed on the Soviet Union, was what one what one piece of a much diff bigger picture. And and that much bigger picture, I'm, I've been reading uh, Will M. Bowden's new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War and the War on the Brink. There was a lot going on in Reagan policy yeah. towards the Soviet Union, placing the Soviet Union under immense pressure. And I don't see evidence of any kind of equivalent effort towards China now.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty
3: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we're going to change topics. Jonah, I'm coming to you first on this one. We talked a lot about this before this episode of whether and how to talk about the Trump dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. And what we all found interesting about it actually turned out to be kind of the same. And so here's my question to you. If Trump had had this dinner a year ago, two weeks ago, would we still be talking about it? And if you agree that the answer is no, because Republicans would have ignored it, moved on from it, refused to comment on it, which isn't what's happening right now. Why is that different today? And what does it say about Trump's stature within the Republican party?
3: Yeah, so like as, as we, we discussed, so to answer the question up front, like a year ago, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. And two years ago, it would have even been a smaller deal. I'm not talking about in the eyes of God. I just mean in terms of like how it was covered and how it was talked about. Um, but um, the. Uh, I
0: hope God has better things to do. I mean, truly, <laughs> we think that from time to time. And I know like, oh, no, but God knows everything. But like, I, seriously, yeah. there's there there's divine providence in the fall of a sparrow far more than in this dinner.
3: Um, And. Uh, but and that's because. The the. Maneuvering room, the oxygen allowed for um, criticizing Trump among Republicans was much narrower or much thinner, depending on which metaphor of mine you're going to grab hold of. The the beauty of this thing was that you had the midterms, which um, ushered in a long overdue conversation about the lessons the GOP needs to learn that it wasn't able to have after 2020 because you only are supposed to learn lessons from loss when you admit that you lost and because Trump wouldn't let anyone talk about how he didn't actually lose or did it, no one was allowed to admit that he actually lost, you couldn't have this sort of after action kind of conversation about how you move forward. So it got, it got kicked down the road to the 2022 midterms where which almost perfectly with one or two exceptions demonstrated that Trump is a bad influence (laughs) on uh, the party's electoral success. I mean, it was, it was, it was almost surgical in the way it just highlighted um, with, you know, a few outliers about abortion and, you know, J.D. Vance and whatever. But for the most part, the more MAGA you were in tone, rhetoric or association, the worse you did. And all of a sudden Republicans are like, We can't keep ignoring this conversation, blah, 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 blah. And then what does Trump do? A week later, he announces he's going to run for president. And with the hope, the plan being, you know, and this this was all planned when he thought he was going to do really well on the midterms, And it had the opposite effect. And people are like, crap, this is really not what we need right now. And then it's almost like East German scientists designed this, this dinner um, to maximize all of the problems with Trump, he goes and has dinner with a self-medicating bipolar anti-Semite, um, black hip hop guy who happens to bring along, uh, one of the foremost neo-Nazis in America, um, who's, uh, an incel, uh, a, a, a incel is an involuntary celibate, um, who has accidentally revealed he's into gay porn, um, And another prominent promoter of uh, the alt-right who is also um, um, literally, I think, the only actual confirmed pro-groomer of anybody in public life in the last five years. And Trump has dinner with them, and the only person he's mad at is the bipolar guy for... Um, saying that Trump should run as his vice president. And I think everybody on this podcast has been denounced more passionately and more frequently by <laughs> Donald Trump than any of the people who were at that dinner um, two weeks later. And so it, it, my point of going through the timeline is, is that it was, it's like each stage, it's like a booster rocket. Each stage accelerated the conversation on the right about how, man, we got to get rid of this guy. And it's still way too sub rosa than it should be, right? It's still way too, you know, like Mike Pompeo subtweeting Trump, <laughs> right? Um, you know, like great profiles and courage. Who would Churchill subtweet? <laughs> um, but uh, the, um, but you can just feel it. The tectonic, you know, the the the, the undertow is all there, and um, and because Trump is not has no formal power anymore. It's just easier to get on the wrong side of him without paying an immediate consequence. And so the, the analogy I used, um, David and I are certainly old enough to remember it Uh, at the end of the uh, Clinton administration where liberals put up with everything you can imagine that Bill Clinton did for eight years. And they all basically rallied around him. And then almost literally as he's going out the door, he pardons Mark Rich and all of a sudden E.J. Dionne writes his columns about how, oh, but that other stuff, that was all hyped up by Republicans. But this is an outrage. And, um, and basically everybody got to prove their intellectual credibility about being willing to criticize Bill Clinton as he was no longer of any use to them. Um, and I think we're seeing some of that as all of these sort of, it's not, it's not uh, uh, born again, never Trumpism. But there's a lot of born-again Trump skepticism, and I I, I
0: welcome it. Steve, do you think that this is evidence of (laughs) a symptom, rather, of Trump's fall within the Republican Party more than it is causing it? Or is this more like post-January 6th, where, yep, everyone denounced it for a few days, and then once they saw that, you know, (laughs) where are my people going, I must lead them, it was right back where it was.
2: So I, th- I think it's much more the former, but there's something more exciting to come out of Jonah's answer than even that substantive question you asked me. And that is that he lumped you and I together generationally and he and David together. So uh, I'll hit you up on TikTok later, Sarah.
1: Oh, god. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't
2: even know if that's the
3: right thing to say. I was alluding to David and mine's, you know, uh, experience and wisdom. <laughs> um, where we have to
2: sort of bring you guys along. I take, I take ho- whatever, however you meant it. However you meant it. Yeah, That's this great. is like
0: when adults used to think Netflix and chill meant like sitting on the couch and watching Netflix. Yeah, boy, I'm telling you. Yeah, like, do not say you want to Netflix and chill with your kids. <laughs> That's not what you think it is.
2: So, okay, so I if there were some innuendo to... To hit you up on TikTok that I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> I'm scared of <laughs> I was just trying to find You're something. You're gonna
0: slide that, into my DMs later.
2: Young people <laughs> say I knew TikTok is popular with the youth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do think this is I do think this is more um, serious for a couple of reasons. Uh, for the past two years, I've been having a running conversation with Anthony Gonzalez, the representative, Republican representative from Ohio, who voted to impeach President Trump and then chose not to run for reelection. And his argument, he's been making an argument consistently, and I think persuasively, that the Republican party ditches Donald Trump when the Republican party sees Donald Trump as a loser. And that whatever their moral qualms about, you know, inciting an interaction insurrection or things like that doesn't really stand up to um, doesn't matter to them nearly as much as Donald Trump potentially being a threat to end their political careers. And uh, I think he's right. I think he's right. I think that's what we're seeing is that they people no longer see Donald Trump as key to their, Survival, and I think we've seen this in the aftermath of the election in a couple of different ways. One is, as we talked about on a dispatch live a couple of weeks ago, um, the speed with which the election deniers, the people who ran on election denialism, abandoned that argument immediately afterwards. Some of them obviously conceded their own races, but nobody's talking about that anymore. And that makes very clear that election denialism in the context of the 2022 election was simply a means to an end. And it was an effort by those candidates to win support for Donald Trump so that they could win their primaries. Watching them abandon it with such speed, um, I think has to raise questions with even the, the most diehard Trump supporters about what this whole thing has has been about for the past year and a half. I mean, It's so obvious that they didn't mean it because nobody's talking about it anymore that I think if you're the mark in the con, you have to sort of recognize that you were the mark in that con at this point. And I think that's a problem. The second big argument I I think is it, it feels different. The, The reasons that Republicans, we have had some Republicans speak out about the, the Nick Fuentes dinner and the anti semitism and it's so gross and over the top. The only person who's, I mean, really offering, much of a def- defense at all is Kevin McCarthy, a, f- a fact that surprises nobody. Kevin McCarthy, who, who's lashed the House Republicans tightly to Donald Trump in the weeks after Mar a Lago, is still suggesting that Donald Trump might not have known who Nick Fuentes was. I find that highly implausible. I, I believe Donald Trump knew exactly who Nick Fuentes was and was happy to meet with him. And Trump. Just, claimed just, just that, one point on that. Just to interrupt one quick.
3: This is a classic. Sarah, I talked about this last time she was on the Remnant. Like this, Trump constantly offers explanations that he thinks absolve him, right? Which are mm-hmm. actually crazily damning, right? And it's sort of like his explanations about classified documents was, well, I wanted them, so I declassified all of them. I said they're declassified, even though you know whatever. It's like it's not true. But even if it were true, that's crazy, right? Right, and similarly, like. Take him at his word for a second. He didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. He still invited ye, right? He still right. he right. Said, and he still said, he bring whoever you want. That's great, right?" And he still has the kind of staff that lets him do that kind of stuff. That's not like that's like, oh well, then there's no problem, right?
2: Right. I agree with that, but I don't buy it at all. I mean, sure. if you yeah, if you look at the circles that, for instance, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., many people oh. on Trump's staff currently run in the people that they communicate with openly and in public on Twitter, Roger Stone. Yeah, of course Donald Trump knew who Nick Fuentes was. And by the way, when Jake Tapper, whatever it was six years ago, confronted Donald Trump on his unwillingness to unequivocally condemn David Duke, Trump pretended like he didn't know who David Duke was and what he believed. I mean, this is a common thing for Trump and it's preposterous. It's really silly. The point is I, I, when you look at people like Kevin McCarthy offering this, you know, sort of silly, kind of pathetic. Trump didn't maybe didn't know who, who Nick Fuentes was. There aren't many other people doing that. What you've seen from from most Republicans is this attempt to not have to answer the question. That the people who've spoken to it have condemned it. I, having spoken to a number of Republican strategists and current and former elected officials on the Republican side in the past couple weeks since the election, and in particular since this, um, this comment or since this dinner, the people who are ducking comment are not ducking comment for the same reasons, it seems to me. They're not sort of trying to avoid enraging Trump by condemning his Nick Fuentes dinner, they're just tired. They just don't want to have to talk about it. They yeah. really don't. Get, they don't. They don't care much. They don't want to. They don't want to weigh in. It's like before there was this determined effort walk through the the halls of the Capitol, and people, you know, you'd see Republican elected officials after a moment like this doing their level best to avoid the the, the throngs of reporters that were coming at them to ask them the questions they knew they were going to be asked. Here, it's not even that. They just ah. I don't want to talk about it. I'm done. And I think that exhaustion grows from the sense that he's just not as big a factor today as he was four weeks ago, uh, four months ago, or four years ago.
1: You know, look, I am extremely glad to see a number of Republicans suddenly finding their voice again. I mean, it's been more than just sort of the, the normal folks. I mean, Mitt Romney has been a reliable voice about Trump for a long time. It's been more than just Mitt Romney who found their voice. Uh, There's certainly a lot of the uh, anti-anti-Trump people who take a Trump controversy and use it to attack any critics of Trump who go too far in their view have been pretty silent. The pro-Trump folks uh, have not really dug in behind this. I mean, there's just, there's without question a change. Without any question at all, it's still nowhere near the way in which Republicans used to condemn Donald Trump in 2016. <laughs> it is no, it's not even within shouting distance of the way in late 2015 or early 2016, you would have Trump rivals or elect Trump elected public, Republican elected public officials come after him. And the real question to me is we've seen what happens when Republican electeds go after him while his base is still with him. And that is that the Republican electeds don't have any real influence to move those folks. The real question is where, where is the base? Where, where are the people? Um, Because we also know if the people exert their will for Trump, then you're going to have all of these Republican electeds. Well, not all of them, but 90% of them are finding their voice again are going to be doing the old French Revolution, there go the people, I must follow them for I'm their leader. So I, I, I tried to get a sense, where are we on this? So there's, there's the 538, um, 538 has every Republican primary poll since uh, the election. So, well, l- let's just do the last, you know, the polls taken in the last two weeks. So since November 16th, they range, and I kid you not, from Trump plus 30 to DeSantis plus 31. That is the range of the polls. And you can't even say that those are unequivocal outliers, though those are the outliers, because I'm looking at a plus 20, a plus 15, a plus 15, a plus 12, plus on each one of these guys. It's all over the place. And I I just don't think we know yet where the Republican base is, you know, with the vibe theory of politics kind of kind of got crushed um, as it was going to, because vibes is always gonna be just so grotesquely subjective. So my vibes say something is different now. My vibes say there's, a, there's this guy who has a house right away, right uh, a couple of blocks from the downtown square in Franklin. And he had a Trump 2024 flag and doesn't have it up anymore. What's that say about vibes? <laughs> I don't know. But I am glad to see Republican officials finding more of their voice. I am waiting to see if it has makes any difference at all. And one thing I do see that is different about 2016 is there doesn't, there does, there doesn't seem to be a huge Republican field uh, coming together for the presidency. One thing that feels eerily similar to 2016 is that the guy who allegedly has the best chance to beat Trump is doing just like what Ted Cruz did, um, not criticizing Donald Trump. And so, I don't know, we'll see, but I'm, I'm overall encouraged, but super cautiously.
0: Uh, (laughs) All of that sounds right to me. This certainly sounds like, again, a symptom of the vibes within Republican sort of elite leadership. Yep. And I 100% assure you that if Donald Trump starts performing well with the base in any of these primaries, at any of these cattle calls, this will have never happened. And <laughs> nobody will care. So, you know, it, it's all very meaningful until it's not anymore.
2: You've got to say that because we've got a bet on it.
0: (laughs) But my bet's the opposite, right? Well, wait, my, yeah.
2: Your bet is that he's the nominee. My bet is that he's not.
3: Yep. Yep. You guys are like the pundit version of those guys on CNBC
2: who just talk up their book. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm looking up, I'm looking up the steakhouses. (laughs) I'm looking up the steakhouses right now.
0: You think I would rather a free steak dinner? Over the alternative?
2: No, it has oh, nothing sorry. to do with the steak dinner. It has everything to do with being able to say to me, I beat you in the bat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the country burns, but I beat Steve. Thank goodness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's oh, yeah, jo- Jonah's, yeah, jo- Jonah's like, <laughs> that's why I those did are it. the right priorities. <laughs> that's,
0: that is why I did it. Because if everything is going to be that bad, I want some silver lining. And that is going to be my silver lining. No question. That's very much why I took the bat. Let's quickly talk about the gun debate that's happening on the Hill. Our colleague, Kevin Williamson, wrote one of his Wonderlands about this. I just want to read a line from it. None of that matters because the gun control debate is not about guns. It is simply another front in the culture war, oriented not toward the criminal misuse of guns, about which our federal, state, and municipal governments do approximately squat, but about the kind of people who tend to own guns or at least the gun-owning villains of the progressive mind. Congress obviously debating another assault weapons ban. I don't really see that happening in the lame duck, and it's certainly not going to happen when Republicans take control of the House. But David is our resident gun nut, not to <coughs> at all diminish Steve and Jonah's gun enthusiasm, but I don't know that y'all are nut level. What.) Um, Wait. <laughs> <laughs>
3: We're not truly (laughs) deranged like David is. That's
0: right. That's right. Um, I'm curious if you agree with that sentiment because I don't, I don't know that I do actually on a few fronts. I think that there are people at this point, especially genuinely concerned about gun violence in this country who are tired of elementary schools being shot up by lunatics who happen to be able to get their hands on a gun because it's so freaking easy to do it. And at Walmart and at the grocery store and in the movie theater, and also at the high school and at another elementary school and a college. I, I take the point that for some people, this is another aspect of the culture war. And also I will say that at least from like the DOJ federal perspective, enormous resources. Percentage wise, are put into trying to get illegal guns off the street. And there's just so many. It's like taking sand out of the beach. Um, I think there should be a lot more resources put towards it, like endless, endless resources um, to not only on the police side go out and find those illegal guns, but actually on the prosecution side to, to try and indict and prosecute and put in jail people who. Knowingly sell and profit from the illegal gun sales. So, for me, part of the reason why I am hesitant on new gun laws is because if we don't put the resources behind the gun laws we have, then why should I care about some new gun law that we're not going to put the resources behind doing anything about? Um, But, David, I was very curious about your perspective. And you, in particular, think have thought for a long time that red flag laws are sort of the path to pursue. But as we just saw in Colorado, You can have red flag laws and they don't do you any good, again, if you don't use them.
1: Right. So let's do the smaller question and then go to the bigger question. The smaller question is, for example, about the red flag laws. So we have now seen three shootings, Illinois, uh, 4th of July, Buffalo, New York, Colorado, El Paso County, uh, the LGBT club, where states that had red flag laws didn't use them when there were indications that the individuals could, I mean, a red flag law could have been used. So uh, there's really a huge difference from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction as to how these things are used. For example, in Florida, they're used all the time, ever since Parkland. It was very publicized that these things existed. And it's interesting, you know, in, in DeSantis's Florida, red flag law orders are very common in the thousands. Okay. In Illinois, they were in the dozens. Now, Illinois isn't that much smaller than Florida population-wise. In in New York, rarely used. So, as you were saying, Sarah, you gotta you gotta use them if you're gonna pass them. Just throwing something on the books doesn't do jack or squat. Now, here's oh, the but thing. yes, it
0: does. It does for your campaign. It does for your cable news right. hits. That's the problem. It yeah. does do something. It just doesn't stop someone from walking into my kid's preschool with a gun. I toured, by the way, a preschool yesterday, incredible place, absolutely loved it. One of the first things they mentioned on the tour was the double set of doors they have and the buzzer system and that all the doors lock from the outside so that the kids can get out through those doors if they need to, but that no one can enter in through them. It was awful to have to do that on a preschool tour.
1: So in Colorado specifically, there's a red flag law, extreme risk protective order law. And uh, the reporting is indicated after the shooting at the LGBT club that um, the El Paso sheriff had never sought a red flag seizure, never uh, uh, initiated a red flag seizure. Uh, Why is that important? Well, there was an incident where uh, law enforcement was called to the shooter's home. Uh, before the shooting, this is well before the shooting, and under circumstances where there would have been cause for a red flag law, and rather than and not only was the the uh, shooter not charged, uh, the the charges against the re- the shooter were dropped prior to the shooting. This was uh, based on a domestic incident at his house, and no red flag order was sought, and so. Here we go again, and this this one seems to be much more of a ideological stance by the sheriff, uh, potentially against red flag laws more generally. And this in this instance, you're left with the what what could have happened, what you know what could have not happened question. So I think we really have to focus on, hey, wait a minute, what tools have we been given, and are we using those tools rather than let's pass another law. And then it sits on the books as well. But on the bigger question, Sarah, about sort of the culture war over guns, I think it's super important to to know that, in my view anyway, a few things have changed. So, throughout the 20 teens, when you were talking about gun rights, and even before the 20 teens, you were dealing with a a reality that while more people were buying guns, gun violence was at a low. um, murders had been decreasing. Gun gun violence had been decreasing. Uh, we were at 20, 30, 40 year lows in the murder rate. And so the sort of idea that where you would say, well, here's a straight line between more guns is going to mean more crime and death was just not the case, right? That was, just wasn't there. But in the last three to four years, a few things have changed. Number one, murder rate has gone way up way up. And, and for everyone who says this is just a uh, you know, big blue city thing, no, it is going up everywhere. Wall Street Journal had a super poignant, long reported piece a few months ago about what's happening in rural America. Gun deaths, gun violence going way up. The other thing is there's been a change in kind of, and some people fight me on this, but I think there's been a change in the gun culture on the right towards more openly armed protest Um, more brandishing of weapons, a more in-your-face culture regarding the weapons that you have. And I think that is also, whether you want to call that culture war or what, that's really, in many ways, rightfully unsettled people. Um, Showing up in an anti-lockdown protest, for example, in Michigan is one thing. Showing up strapped with AR-15s and then walking into the Michigan legislature with AR-15s is something else entirely. And uh, we've seen people showing up with weapons at people's homes to protest. All of that is really deeply um, dangerous, rightfully unsettling to people, um, intentionally unsettling to people. So I think in a lot of ways, the debate is changing a great deal from the way it was in 2015, 2016, when you had historically low crime rates, a, a escalating problems with mass shootings, But again, those were isolated instances. Um, Now you have a much broader version of a problem with gun violence, more mass shootings, and a culture on the far right that uses guns as instruments of public intimidation. And I think it's changing the debate.
0: Jonah, does changing the debate matter? Does anything actually change other than we react to the... both the actual crime numbers and the feelings around crime numbers
3: um, I wish I could say yes, but i don't I don't see it. I mean I think part of the part of the reason why I hate the gun debate is that there really is a groundhog day feel to it, right and mm-hmm. you see everybody on on either side of the debate they you know they wait to find out the first details about the shooter so that they can then grab the appropriate Arguments off their shelf and figure out whether they're going to be on offense or defense. And um, I just find it all so gross. And that said, I, I think, you know, like I, I am a supporter of red flag laws. David's convinced me on this. It's worth pointing out, though, that there are no, for want of a better term, silver bullets in all of this, right? So red flag laws will not solve the whole problem. I don't right. think David's ever argued that they would. Um, one of the problems with, with red flag laws is that. um, you you need the people closest to the would-be shooter to be good people who are concerned about both the shooter and his potential victims. Now, I don't want to cast too far into too deep in dispersions on, on this, but like I've seen the interviews of this guy's dad from Colorado Springs. This was not a great dad. Yeah. Like he was far more concerned by the possibility that his son might be gay than the possibility that his son might've murdered a bunch of people. Um, and that, and he also, he seemed like a meth head or something. I mean, he was crazy out of it and, and like day drunk, not that I can throw those stones too far. And, um, but like, those kinds of people are not the kind of people who are going to take time out of their day to run down to a court and, 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 um, apply for a red flag. Um, Law warrant thingamabob. The other problem, I think, that I do think there is potential to actually fix to make real improvements is with is is on the police side. Democrats have realized that defund the police was just politically incredibly stupid, and they're they're very quietly backing away from it. But there has been this effort, you know, with a lot of these very you know left wing prosecutors to basically decriminalize gun laws at the back end by refusing to prosecute criminals, violent criminals, or would-be violent criminals, or people who brandish weapons, right? Um, or people who might, the next time they commit a crime, have a weapon. And the sort of decarceral you know, project is a big part of the gun violence problem. And case in point is, you know, even if this dude, in, and I'm glad that we're not naming him, even if the dude in Colorado Springs um, didn't have a family that was willing to take out, uh, you know, uh, uh, a red flag warrant on him. Um, the police could have because they arrested him for this bomb threat thing beforehand. And it seems to me like if you actually prosecute people for in the Brooklyn, no one's disproven the broken windows theory. If you prosecute people for the smaller crimes, you prevent the bigger crimes down the road. And I think that there's potential for the United States to move back into a saner position on law enforcement um, where, yeah, we'll have some social workers do some of the stuff with homeless people, but we'll also prosecute people for violent crimes. And if if we can convince people on that, the data show, it's very clear, black people are the biggest victims of, of violent crime, of gun crime. Um, and if you can break through on that argument, I think... You're not going to solve the problem of the crazy mass shooter necessarily, but you're actually going to do a big, take a big bite out of the problem of, of gun deaths in this country.
1: Can I jump in here real, real fast on this very point? The, the Crazy mass shooter in one category, because about what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to these people. Cause some of these people are committing suicide by cop. There's no sense. None of them have any sense. They're going to actually get away with this. National Institutes for Justice um, had some really interesting work that's essentially said, "Look, we know we know what deters crime. It's not severity of punishment because criminals often don't even know. Like you're you're imputing knowledge of sentencing ranges to criminals. One thing that deters um, crime is police presence. In other words, if there is a cop standing there, you're much less likely to you know rob the CVS. So." More cops visible helps prevent crime, and the other thing is certainty of punishment, not severity. It's certainty. I know I'm going to get caught. So these two things are pretty related: presence and certainty, right? But this is also where some of the progressive prosecutors' actions, I think, really are very harmful, because if the message is sent that there are entire categories of crimes for where, if you're even even if you're caught, there isn't a consequence. So. If, Presence plus punishment is really the 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 key to reducing crime. and these progressive prosecutors who say there's entire categories of where even if there's presence, there's no punishment is that's a real problem. And this is where the defund the police movement just absolutely, and I mean, it's sort of like piling on a runner who's already down on the field at this point, but really, just deeply destructive. But it's more than just funding the police. It's getting them out there in the community in an effective way and then actually prosecuting much more than it is stiffening penalties.
0: Okay, let's switch modes here for a minute. Um, Steve, I got to say, you just kind of seem, look, vibe like a soccer fan. Have you been watching the World Cup?
2: Um. I don't know whether that's whether you intend that as an insult or a compliment. What do you think? But I have (laughs) been watching the World Cup uh, in the few spare moments that I have had over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I grew up playing soccer since I was five years old, played uh, all the way up into college. But isn't
0: that what's so weird in this country? There's a whole group that we used to call soccer moms like a huge voting block we referred to by that every kid in this country was assumed presumed to be playing soccer growing up and yet we're a country not really of soccer fans at all i've always found that strange
2: i think that's true i mean I'll, th- this is this is anecdotal it's not widespread and i will i will admit that i found this that i was surprised that that that, that i found this moving so i was um the second half of the us Versus Iran game earlier this week, which the U.S. uh, in which the U.S. prevailed one to nothing. Um, I was at Midway Airport in Chicago and waiting for a flight from Chicago to New York, and watching it sitting at one of the restaurants, sort of in the middle of uh, of the terminal. And I was sort of struck by how many people stopped and watched. And watched the whole second half. Like, I would say there was a crowd of a couple hundred people sitting around this thing who were really into it and getting excited. And at the end of the game, when the U.S. prevailed after a a very um, difficult to watch last 10 minutes, um, the place went sort of nuts. And it was cool. It was, like, surprisingly affecting. Now, if you hate soccer, maybe it wouldn't have been. (laughs) But but I was also, we, we haven't had that kind of a a moment. And look, we didn't win the World Cup. It's not over. I, I can see from the skeptical looks on the faces of the three of you right now. That's not
0: why our faces are skeptical.
2: <laughs> that... <laughs> that you don't care, and you're you're uh, anti-patriotic when it comes to soccer. but it was it was a cool moment. Like people were really excited. Uh, and I found it sort of surprisingly uh, affecting when I was watching it.
0: You totally misunderstand, like the Olympics, if the u s is playing any other country in anything, I'm super into it. I will learn the rules so that I can vaguely understand what I'm cheering for so I don't accidentally cheer for the other team. So, yep, World Cup, I'm all in. I don't enjoy watching soccer. I find it incredibly boring. But my patriotism overcomes my boredom. However, didn't you feel a little bit weird rooting against Iran, which is a weird thing to say, but wait for it, because their team had, you know, not sung along with their national anthem, had been protesting their regime. And then we crushed them and kicked them out of the tournament.
2: Little, And they later, they, they, they didn't sing the anthem at the first game of the World Cup. They sort of half sang it at the second game of the World Cup. And then they sang it at the third game of the World Cup amidst reports that their families were being pressured. No, I did not because I think many of the people who were protesting in Iran wanted the team to lose because... because of sort of the national pride implications of the loss. And you saw after the game and after the loss, some protests in Iran that were celebrating the loss.
0: But wait, which side? Aren't both, I mean, my understanding is that both sides of anyone who is in Iran is celebrating the loss. Because if you thought the team was protesting and they shouldn't have been because they should have been, you know, representing their country, you wanted them to lose. Um, And if you thought they shouldn't have gone in the first place, if they were really dissidents, then you wanted them to lose too.
2: The ones that I saw um, were people who were supporters of the the protesters celebrating the defeat.
0: And what's their argument for celebrating the defeat?
2: That this is a blow to the regime. That that the regime would have liked to have had this kind of Got propaganda okay. victory: Iran beating the United States, what have you. I mean, it's clear that you know that, that there have been some really interesting stories about the. The players and uh, former soccer teammates of uh, one of the players apparently was killed in, in these protests. Um, there was, I think, a nice and by all accounts, genuine display uh, after the game where the U.S. team comforted the Iranian players who lost, um, some of whom were no doubt upset about losing in the World Cup. It's a high pressure, high stakes thing, and it's a big deal just to go. But you certainly got the sense that there was more going on there, um, particularly, again, amidst the reports that uh, the the families of the players had been pressured uh, going in.
0: Jonah, why don't we just do what we used to do in the Cold War? You show up to a tournament with our country and send us a little note that says, want to defect. And we grab you, we whisk you off, and put you in South Dakota, where you live a long and happy life in the cold,
3: where you uh, can raise chickens like Sam Neil wanted to, and hunt for Red October. <laughs> I thought Montana. it was
0: bunnies. I thought he wanted to. Raise, I think he wanted bunnies? to raise rabbits in Montana. Rabbits, yeah. In uh, <laughs> it's indifferent.
3: Yeah. Eh, um, <laughs> look, I, uh, I, I <laughs> same thing, same thing. I don't watch the World Cup. I try a few times. I just have a sort of thing where any sport where people can watch for a very long period of time and that ends in a zero zero tie and people can still say, wow, that was a great game. <laughs> isn't for me. It just, it's just not for me. And I have grown to appreciate that, that sane people with with that are not severely disordered can in fact enjoy watching soccer. I'm just not one of them. And, uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I, the, 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 the match itself, the iran um u s thing was very poignant, and um I don't know how you fix how how you make it not you literally can't take out all of these outside considerations when you're watching it' it's just the the context is just is too huge um and too complicated um and uh um it does kind of make you miss the Cold War, where it's just much easier to root for good guys versus bad guys.
0: David, what would you think about the beer thing? The ban on beer? Well, that they took all the money for advertising, and then at the last minute said, oh, and also we're not going to sell beer at the stadium. I mean, yes,
1: what? that's what you get when you have the World Cup and Qatar. And, you know, the...
0: Uh, FIFA corruption. Yep. The yeah, best. it's all
1: about, you know, these as we said before, like these Austin Powers level villains in FIFA, and this is what happens. But Sarah, I'm totally with you on, I don't care what it is. If it's America versus X, I'm suddenly not just going to watch it. I'm passionate about it. And, and that's included about every wild sport that's now ever been in the Olympics. Like,
0: I mean, it turns out I'm now into curling, but the reason I watched any curling was simply because it was the U S winning and beating badly other countries. And for some reason, especially our allies, that, that feels like good, wholesome. (laughs) And there's not sort of this looming sadness over the whole thing. No, let's just beat the crap out of Canada once in a while.
1: I'm happy to beat the crap out of Canada was, but that's paled in comparison to beating the Soviet union or East Germany and anything.
0: Yes. Yeah, but we don't have that now. Everything's complicated, like Jonah said. There's a lot of stuff. Well, I
1: know. That's what I was going to say about the Iranian. And ordinarily, I would say, like, if this was U.S. versus Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps team, then I'm just (laughs) overjoyed. But this was like U.S. versus Natan Sharansky's, you know, like, uh, imagine we're taking on the Soviet team and it's staffed with dissidents pulled from the Gulag, you know, and so (laughs) you're thinking... Yay, we beat the Soviets, but darn, like these guys are in a world of hurt. This is, you know, so I, I, there were definite, I, I felt for those Iranian players and the, the level of courage that they showed, unbelievable, just unbelievable. So
3: they were inspiring and I'm glad we beat them. The Iranian fans in the stadium were kind of a fascinating mm. thing because yes. you had pro-regime fans yeah. and you had anti-regime fans, Ugh. but I assume the anti-regime ones were more like expats coming from other places
2: in the Iranian diaspora. But I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was fascinating. I have to, I can't let this discussion end without pointing out the, the irony of being lectured about the boredom of soccer from you people who find... Things like Tron and Battlestar Galactica <laughs> scintillating. Like it's like the Dork Squad revenge here. And I'm not standing for any of it. Soccer is far more yeah, interesting than any of your sci-fi like okay. sci-fi crap <laughs> that you guys are constantly pushing on us and our poor, beleaguered listeners. Sarah,
1: is that what you millennials call a drive-by? <laughs>
0: i don't think that any of you should be trying to adopt millennial talk didn't steve teach you valuable lesson already in this podcast you guys
2: on tiktok
3: (laughs) (laughs) i want like i want to get back to 1920s like flapper talk yeah um you know like lots of like talk about malarkey and and 23 skidoo what was it like back then It was, it was a simpler
0: time. <laughs> Things are, you can see them devolving. You can hear them. You can feel them. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Don't forget to give this a rating. It helps boost the numbers that then help the algorithm that then help other people find this podcast or so I'm told. Uh, and you can always hop into the comment section where we are eager to tell you why you're wrong. Uh, just become a member of the dispatch and it's a fun little comment section. Good times. Otherwise, we will talk to you again next week.
3: You know, the, the, the days of David bragging about how his superior home set up are exactly. pretty far back in the rearview mirror now that you think about it.
0: Our our AO that was definitely only an hour or less long took an hour and a half because this kept happening. My,
2: mine been pretty good.
0: Don't jinx it, Steve, but you're doing great. Really good. Those, those hamsters churning the internet wheel at your mm-hmm. house. You've been feeding them well. They seem healthy.
3: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
1: Like, are you a fist pumper?